not only action and language, but spirit and temper must be changed. But, says someone, grace is often grafted on a crab stock. I know it is, but what is the fruit of the grafting? The fruit will be like the graft and not after the nature of the original stem. But, says another, I have an awful temper and all of a sudden it overcomes me. My anger is soon over and I feel very penitent. Though I cannot control myself, I am quite sure I am a Christian. Not so fast, my friend, or I may answer that I am quite as sure the other way. What is the use of your soon cooling if in two or three moments you scald all around you? If a man stabs me in a fury, it will not heal my wound to see him grieving over his madness. Hasty temper must be conquered, and the whole man must be renewed, or conversion will be questionable. We are not to hold up a modified holiness before our people and say, You will be all right if you reach that standard. The scripture says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. Abiding under the power of any known sin is a mark of our being the servants of sin, for his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Idle are the boasts of a man who harbors within himself the love of any transgression. He may feel what he likes and believes what he likes. He is still in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity, while a single sin rules his life and heart. True regeneration implants a hatred of all evil, and where one sin is delighted in, the evidence is fatal to a sound hope. A man need not take a dozen poison to destroy his life. One is quite sufficient. There must be a harmony between life and the profession. A Christian professes to renounce sin, and if he does not do so, his very name is an imposter. A drunken man came up to Roland Hill one day and said, I am one of your converts, Mr. Hill. I dare say you are, replied the shrewd and sensible preacher, but you are none of the Lord's or you would not be drunk. To this practical test we must bring all our work. In our converts we must also see true prayer, which is the vital breath of godliness. If there is no prayer, you may be quite sure the soul is dead. We are not to urge men to pray as though that were the great gospel duty in the one prescribed way of salvation. For our chief message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is easy to put prayer into a wrong place and make it out to be a kind of work by which men are to live. But this you will, I trust, most carefully avoid. Faith is the great gospel grace. But still, we cannot forget that true faith always prays, and when a man professes faith in the Lord Jesus, and yet does not cry to the Lord daily, we dare not believe in his faith or his conversion. The Holy Ghost's evidence by which he convinced Ananias of Paul's conversion was not, Behold, he talks loudly of his joy and feelings, but behold, he prayeth, and that prayer was earnest heartbroken confession and supplication. Oh, to see this sure evidence in all who profess to be our converts. There must also be a willingness to obey the Lord in all his commandments. It is a shameful thing for a man to profess discipleship 
and yet refuse to learn his Lord's will upon certain points, or even dare to decline obedience when that will is known. How can a man be a disciple of Christ when he openly lives in disobedience to him? If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows his Lord's will, but does not mean to attend to it, you are not to pamper his presumption, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. Has not the Lord said, He that taketh not up his cross and cometh after me cannot be my disciple? Mistakes as to what the Lord's will may be are to be tenderly corrected, but anything like willful disobedience is fatal. To tolerate it would be treason to him that sent us. Jesus must be received as king as well as priest, and where there is any hesitancy about this, the foundation of godliness is not yet laid. Faith must obey her maker's will as well as trust his grace. A pardoning God is jealous still for his own holiness. Thus you see, my brethren, the signs which prove that a soul is one are by no means trifling, and the work to be done ere those signs can exist is not to be lightly spoken of. A soul winner can do nothing without God. He must cast himself on the invisible or be laughing stock to the devil who regards with utter disdain all who think and subdue human nature with mere words and arguments. To all who hope to succeed in such a labor by their own strength, we would address the words of the Lord to Job. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Lay thy hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? Dependence upon God is our strength and our joy. In that dependence let us go forth and seek to win souls for him. Now in the course of our ministry we should meet with many failures in this matter of soul winning. There are many birds that I have thought I had caught. I have even managed to put salt on their tails, but they have gone flying off after all. I remember one man whom I will call Tom Careless. He was the terror of the village in which he lived. There were many incendiary fires in the region, and most people attributed them to him. Sometimes he would be drunk for two or three weeks at a spell, and then he raved and raged like a madman. That man came to hear me. I recollect the sensation that went through the little chapel when he came in. He sat there and fell in love with me. I think that was the only conversion that he experienced, but he professed to be converted. He had apparently been the subject of genuine repentance, and he became outwardly quite a changed character, gave up his drinking and swearing, and was in many respects an exemplary individual. I remember seeing him tugging a barge with perhaps a hundred people on board whom he was drawing up to a place where I was going to preach, and he was glorying in the work and singing as gladly and happily as any one of them. If anybody spoke a word against the Lord or his servant, 
He did not hesitate a moment, but knocked him over. Before I left the district, I was afraid that there was no real work of grace in him. He was a wild, red Indian sort of a man. I have heard of him taking a bird, plucking it, and eating it raw in the field. This is not the act of a Christian man. It is not one of the things that are comely and of good repute. After I left the neighborhood, I asked after him, and I could hear nothing good of him. The spirit that kept him outwardly right was gone, and he became worse than he was before, if that was possible. Certainly he was no better. He was unreachable by any agency. The work of mine did not stand the fire. It would not bear even ordinary temptation. You see, after the person who had influence over the man was gone away. When you move from the village or town where you have been preaching, it is very likely that some who did run well will go back. They have an affection for you, and your words have a kind of mesmeric influence over them. And when you are gone, the dog will run to his vomit, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Do not be in a hurry to count those supposed converts. Do not take them into the church too soon. Do not be too proud of their enthusiasm if it is not accompanied with some degree of softening and tenderness to show that the Holy Spirit has really been at work within them. I remember another case of quite a different sort. I will call this person Miss Mary Shallow, for she was a young lady who was never blessed with many brains. But living in the same house with several Christian young ladies, she also professed to be converted. When I conversed with her, there was apparently everything that one could wish for. I thought of proposing her to the church, but it was judged best to give her a little trial first. After a while, she left the associations of the place where she had lived and went where she had nothing much to help her. And I never heard anything more of her except that her whole time was spent in dressing herself as smartly as she could and in frequenting gay society. She is a type of those who have not much mental furniture. And if the grace of God does not take possession of the empty space, they will soon go back into the world. I have known several like a young man whom I will call Charlie Clever, uncommonly clever young fellows at anything and everything, very clever at counterfeiting religion when they took up with it. They prayed very fluently, and they tried to preach and did it very well. Whatever they did, they did it offhand. It was as easy to them as kissing their hand. Do not be in a hurry to take such people into the church. They have known no humiliation on account of sin, no brokenness of heart, no sense of divine grace. They cry, all serene, and away they go. But you will find that they will never repay you for your labor and trouble. They will be able to use the language of God's people as well as the best of his saints. They will even talk of their doubts and fears and they will get up a deep experience in five minutes. They are a little too clever, and they are calculated to do much mischief when they get into the church. So keep them out if you possibly can. I remember one who was very saintly in his talk. I will call him John Fairspeech. Oh, how cunningly he could act the hypocrite, 
getting among our young men and leading them into all manner of sin and iniquity, and yet he would call and see me and have half an hour's spiritual conversation. An abominable wretch who was living in open sin at the very time that he was seeking to come to the Lord's table and joining our societies and anxious to be a leading man in every good work. Keep your weather eye open, brethren. They will come to you with money in their hands like Peter's fish with the silver in its mouth and they will be so helpful in the work. They speak so softly and they are such perfect gentlemen. Yes, I believe Judas was a man exactly of that kind, very clever at deceiving those around him. We must mind that we do not get any of these into the church if we can anyhow keep them out. You may say to yourself at the close of the service, Here is a splendid haul of fish. Wait a bit. Remember our Savior's words, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good unto vessels, but cast the bad away. Do not number your fishes before they are boiled, nor count your converts before you have tested and tried them. This process may make your work somewhat slow, but then, brethren, it will be sure. Do your work steadily and well, so that those who come after you may not have to say that it was far more trouble to them to clear the church of those who ought never to have been admitted than it was to you to admit them. If God enables you to build 3,000 bricks into his spiritual temple in one day, you may do it. But Peter has been the only bricklayer who has accomplished that feat up to the present. Do not go and paint the wooden wall as if it were a solid stone, but let all your building be real, substantial, and true, for only this kind of work is worth the doing. Let all your building for God be like that of the Apostle Paul, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Chapter 2, page 12 Qualifications for Soul Winning Godward Our main business, brethren, is to win souls. Like the shoeing smiths, we need to know a great many things. But just as the smiths must know about horses and how to make shoes for them, so we must know about souls and how to win them for God. A part of the subject on which I shall speak to you this afternoon is Qualifications for Soul Winning. Keeping myself to one subject set of those qualifications, namely the Godward ones, I shall try to treat the subject in somewhat a common sense style, asking you to judge for yourselves 
what those qualifications would be which God would naturally look for in his servants, what qualifications he would be likely to approve and most likely to use. You must know that every workman, if he be wise, uses a tool that is likely to accomplish the purpose he has in view. There are some artists who have never been able to play except upon their own violin or to paint except with their own favorite brush and palette. And certainly the great God, the mightiest of all workers in his great artistic work of soul winning, loves to have his own special tools. In the old creation he used none but his own instruments. He spake and it was done. And in the new creation the efficient agent is still his powerful word. He speaks to the ministry of his servants and therefore they must be fit trumpets for him to speak through, fit instruments for him to use for conveying his word to the ears and hearts of men. Judge ye then, my brethren, whether God will use you. Imagine yourself in his place and think what kind of men those would be whom you would be most likely to use if you were in the position of the Most High God. I am sure you would say, first of all, that a man who is to be a soul winner must have holiness of character. Ah, how few who attempt to preach think sufficiently of this. If they did, it would strike them at once that the Eternal would never use dirty tools, that thrice holy Jehovah would only select holy instruments for the accomplishment of his work. No wise man would pour his wine into foul bottles. No kind and good parent would allow his children to go to sea in a moral play. And God will not go to work with instruments which would compromise his own character. Suppose it were well known that if men were only clever, God would use them, whatever their character and conduct might be. Suppose it were understood that you could get on as well in the work of God by trickery and untruthfulness as by honesty and uprightness. What man in the world with any right feeling would not be ashamed of such a state of affairs? But brethren, it is not so. There are many in the present day who tell us that the theater is a great school for morals. That must be a strange school where the teachers never learn their own lessons. In God's school, the teachers must be masters of the art of holiness. If we teach one thing by our lips and another by our lives, those who listen to us will say, Physician, heal thyself. Thou sayest, Repent. Where is thine own repentance? Thou sayest, Serve God and be obedient to his will. Do you serve him? Are you obedient to his will? An unholy ministry would be a derision of the world and a dishonor to God. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. He will speak through a fool if he be but a holy man. I do not, of course, mean that God chooses fools to be his ministers, but let a man once become really holy, even though he has but the slenderest possible ability, he will be a more fit instrument in God's hand than the man of gigantic acquirements, who is not obedient to the divine will nor clean and pure in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. Dear brethren, I do beg you to attach the highest importance to your own personal holiness. Do live unto God. 
If you do not, your Lord will not be with you. He will say of you, as he said of the false prophets of old, I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. You may preach very fine sermons, but if you are not yourselves holy, there will be no soul saved. The probability is that you will not come to the conclusion that your want of holiness is the reason for your non-success. You will blame the people. You will blame the age in which you live. You will blame anything except yourself. But there will be the root of the whole mischief. Do I not myself know men of considerable ability in industry who go on year after year without any increase in their churches? The reason is that they are not living before God as they ought to live. Sometimes the evil is in the family of the ministers. His sons and daughters are rebels against God. Bad language is allowed even amongst his own children, and his reproofs are simply like Eli's mild question to his wicked sons. Why do ye such things? Sometimes the minister is worldly, greedy after gain, neglectful of his work. That is not according to God's mind, and he will not bless such a man. When I listened to Mr. George Mueller as he was preaching at Mentone, it was just such an address as might be given to a Sunday school by an ordinary teacher, yet I never heard a sermon that did me more good and more richly profited my soul. It was George Mueller in it that made it so useful. There was no George Mueller in it in one sense, for he preached not himself but Christ Jesus the Lord. He was only there in his personality as a witness to the truth, but he bore that witness in such a manner that you could not help saying, That man not only preaches what he believes, but also what he lives. In every word he uttered, his glorious life of faith seemed to fall upon both ear and heart. I was delighted to sit and listen to him. Yet, as for novelty or strength of thought, there was not a trace of it in the whole discourse. Holiness was the preacher's force, and you may depend upon it that, if God is to bless us, our strength must lie in the same direction. This holiness ought to show itself in communion with God. If a man delivers his own message, it will have such power as his own character gives to it. But if he delivers his master's message, having heard it from his master's lips, that will be quite another thing. And if he can acquire something of the master's spirit as he looked upon him and gave him the message, if he can reproduce the expression of his master's face in the tone of his master's voice, that also will be quite another thing. Read McShane's memoir. Read the whole of it. I cannot do you a better service than by recommending you to read it. There is no great freshness of thought. There is nothing very novel or striking in it. But as you read it, you must get good out of it. For you are conscious that it is the very story of the life of a man who walked with God. Moody would never have spoken with the force he did if he had not lived a life of fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The greatest force of the sermon lies in what has gone before the sermon. You must get ready for the whole service by private fellowship with God and real holiness of character. You will all confess that if a man is to be used as a winner of souls, 
he must have spiritual life to a high degree. You see, brethren, our work is under God to communicate life to others. It would be well to imitate Elisha when he stretched himself upon the dead child and brought him back to life. The prophet's staff was not sufficient because it had no life in it. The life must be communicated by a living instrument and the man who is to communicate the life must have a great deal of it himself. You remember the words of Christ, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That is, the Holy Spirit, when he dwells within a living child of God, afterwards rises out of the very midst of him as a fountain or a river, so that others may come and participate in the Spirit's gracious influences. I do not think there is one of you who would wish to be a dead minister. God will not use dead tools for working living miracles. He must have living men and men that are all alive. There are many who are alive, but they are not altogether alive. I remember once seeing a painting of a resurrection, which was one of the queerest pictures I ever saw. The artist had attempted to depict the moment when the work was only half done. There were some who were alive down as far as their waists. Some had one arm alive. Some had part of their heads alive. This thing is quite possible in our day. There are some men who are only about half alive. They have a living jaw, but not a living heart. Others have a living heart, but not a living brain. Others have a living eye. They can see things pretty plainly, but their hearts are not alive. They can give good descriptions of what they see, but there is no warmth of love in them. There are some ministers who are one half angel and the other half, well, let us say, maggots. It is an awful contrast, but there are many instances of it. Are there any such here? They preach well, as you say, as you listen to one of them. That is a good man. You feel that he is a good man. You hear that he is going to such and such a person's house to supper, and you think that you will go in to supper there. Two, that you may hear what gracious words will fall from his lips. And as you watch, out they come, maggots. It was an angel in the pulpit. Now come out the worms. It is so, often, but it never ought to be so. If we want to be true witnesses for God, we must be all angel and no worms. God deliver us from this state of semi-death. May we be all alive from the crown of our head to the sole of our foot. I know some such ministers. You cannot come into contact with them without feeling the power of the spiritual life which is in them. It is not merely while they are talking upon religious topics, but upon the commonplace things of the world. You are conscious that there is something about the men which tells you that they are all alive unto God. Such men will be used by God for the quickening of others. Suppose it were possible for you to be exalted into the place of God. Do you not think next that you would employ a man who thought little of himself, a man of humble spirit? If you saw a very proud man, would you be likely to use him as your servant? Certainly the great God has a predilection for those who are humble. For thus saith the High and Lofty One that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He loatheth the proud, and whenever he sees the high and mighty, he passes them by. But whenever he finds the lowly in heart, he takes pleasure in exalting them. He delights especially in humility amongst his ministers. It is an awful sight to see a proud minister. There are few things that can give the devil more joy than this whenever he takes his walks abroad. Here is something that delights him, and he says to himself, Here are all the preparations for a great fall before long. Some ministers show their pride by their style in the pulpit. You can never forget the way in which they announce their text. It is I, be not afraid. Others manifest it in their attire, in the silly vanity of their dress, or else in their common talk, in which they continually magnify the deficiencies of others and speak at length on their own extraordinary excellencies. There are two sorts of proud people, and it is difficult sometimes to say which of the two is the worse. There is, first of all, the kind that is full of the vanity which talks about itself and invites other people to talk about it too and to pat it on the back and stroke its feathers the right way. It is all full of its little morsel of a self and goes strutting about and saying, Praise me, please praise me, I want it. Like a little child who goes to each one in the room and says, See my new dress? Isn't it a beauty? You may have seen some of these pretty dears. I have met many of them. The other kind of pride is too big for that sort of thing. It does not care for it. It despises people so much that it does not condescend to wish for their praises. It is so supremely satisfied with itself that it does not stoop to consider what others think of it. I have sometimes thought it is the more dangerous kind of pride spiritually, but it is much the more respectable of the two. There is, after all, something very noble in being too proud to be proud. Suppose those great donkeys did bray at you. Do not be such a donkey as to notice them. But this other poor little soul says, Well, everybody's praise is worth something, and so he baits his mousetraps and tries to catch little mice of praise that he may cook them for his breakfast. He has a mighty appetite for such things. Brethren, get rid of both kinds of pride if you have anything of either of them about you. The dwarf pride and the orgy pride are both of them abominations in the sight of the Lord. Never forget that you are disciples of him who said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Humility is not having a mean opinion of yourself. If a man has a low opinion of himself, it is very possible that he is correct in his estimate. I have known some people whose opinion of themselves, according to what they have said, is very low indeed. They thought so little of their own powers that they never ventured to try to do any good. They said they had no self-reliance. I have known some so wonderfully humble that they have always liked to pick an easy place for themselves. They were too humble to do anything that would bring any blame upon them. They called it humility, but I thought sinful love of ease would have been a better name for their conduct. True humility will lead you to think right about yourselves, to think the truth about yourselves. In the matter of soul winning, humility makes you feel that you are nothing and nobody, 
in that if God gives you success in the work, you will be driven to ascribe to him all the glory, for none of the credit of it could properly belong to you. If you do not have success, humility will lead you to blame your own folly and weakness, not God's sovereignty. Why should God give blessing and then let you run away with the glory of it? The glory of the salvation of souls belongs to him and to him alone. Then why should you try to steal it? You know how many attempt this theft. When I was preaching at such and such a place, fifteen persons came into the vestry at the close of the service and thanked me for the sermon I had preached. You and your blessed sermon be hanged. I might have used a stronger word if I had liked for really you are worthy of condemnation whenever you take to yourself the honor which belongeth unto God only. You remember the story of the young prince who came into the room where he thought his dying father was sleeping and put the king's crown on his head to see how it would fit him. The king who was watching him said, Wait a little while, son, wait till I am dead. So when you feel any inclination to put the crown of glory on your head, just fancy that you hear God saying to you, Wait till I am dead before you try on my crown. As that will never be, you had better leave the crown alone and let him wear it to whom it rightly belongs. Our song must ever be, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Some men who have not had humility have been sent adrift from the ministry for the Lord will not use those who will not ascribe the honor entirely to himself. Humility is one of the chief qualifications for usefulness. Many have passed away from the role of useful men because they have been lifted up with pride and so have fallen into the snare of the devil. Perhaps you feel that, as you are only poor students, there is no fear of your falling into this sin. But it is quite possible that with some of you there is all the more danger for this very reason if God should bless you and put you in a prominent position. A man who is brought up in a good circle of society all his life does not feel the change so much when he reaches a position which to others would be a great elevation. I always feel that in the case of certain men whom I could name a great mistake was made. As soon as they were converted they were taken right out of their former associations and put before the public as popular preachers. It was a great pity that many made little kings of them and so prepared the way for their fall, for they could not bear the sudden change. It would have been a good thing for them if everybody had pitched into them and abused them for ten or twenty years, for it would have probably saved them from much after misery. I am always very grateful for the rough treatment I received in my earlier days from all sorts of people. The moment I ever did any good thing at all, they were at me like a pack of hounds. I had not time to sit down and boast what I had done, for they were raving and roaring at me continually. If I had been picked up all of a sudden and placed where I am now, the probability is that I should have gone down again just as quickly. When you go out of the college, it will be well for you if you are treated as I was. If you have great success, it will turn your head if God does not permit you to be afflicted in some way or other. If you are ever tempted to say, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? 
Just remember Nebuchadnezzar, when he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair was grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. God has many ways of fetching proud Nebuchadnezzars down, and he can very easily humble you too, if you are ever lifted up with conceit. This point of the need of deep humility in a soul winner does not need any proof. Everyone can see with half an eye that God is not likely to bless any man much unless he is truly humble. The next essential qualification for success in the work of the Lord, and it is a vital one, is a living faith. You know, brethren, how the Lord Jesus Christ could not do many mighty works in his own country because of the unbelief of the people. And it is equally true that with some men God cannot do many mighty works because of their unbelief. If ye will not believe, neither shall ye be used of God. According to your faith, be it unto you, is one of the unalterable laws of his kingdom. If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto the mountains, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. But if the question has to be put, Where is your faith? The mountains will not move for you, nor will even a poor sycamore tree be stirred from its place. You must have faith, brethren, about your call to the ministry. You must believe without question that you are really chosen of God to be ministers of the gospel of Christ. If you firmly believe that God has called you to preach the gospel, you will preach it with courage and confidence. You will feel that you are going to your work because you have a right to do it. If you have an idea that possibly you are nothing but an interloper, you will do nothing on any account. You will be only a poor, limping, diffident, half-apologetic preacher for whose message no one will care. You had better not begin to preach until you are quite sure that God has called you to the work. A man once wrote to ask me whether he should preach or not. When I do not know what reply to send to anyone, I always try to give a wise an answer as I possibly can. Accordingly, I wrote to this man, Dear friend, if the Lord has opened your mouth, the devil cannot shut it. But if the devil has opened it, may the Lord shut it up. Six months afterwards I met the man and he thanked me for my letter, which he said greatly encouraged him to go on preaching. I said, How was that? He replied, You said if the Lord has opened your mouth, the devil cannot shut it. I said, Yes, I did so. But I also put the other side of the question. Oh, said he at once, that part did not relate to me. We can always have oracles to suit our own ideas if we know how to interpret them. If you have genuine faith in your call to the ministry, you will be ready with Luther to preach the gospel even while standing within the jaws of the Leviathan between his great teeth. You must also believe that the message you have to deliver is God's word. I had sooner that you believed half a dozen truths intensely than a hundred only feebly. If your hand is not large enough to hold a great deal, hold firmly what you can because if it came to a regular push and shove and we all of us were allowed to carry away as much gold as we could take from a heap it might not be much use to have a very big purse but he would come off best in the scuffle who
who should close his hand tightly on as much as he could conveniently hold and not let go. We may sometimes do well to imitate the boy mentioned in the ancient fable when he put his hand into the narrow necked jar and grasped as many nuts as he could hold he could not get even one of them out but when he let half of them go the rest came out with ease so must we do we cannot hold everything it is impossible our hand is not big enough but when we do get anything in it let us hold it fast and grip it tightly believe what you do believe or else you will never persuade anybody else to believe it. If you adopt this style, I think this is a truth, and as a young man I beg to ask your kind attention to what I am about to say. I am merely suggesting, and so on. If that is your mode of preaching, you will go to work the easiest way to breed doubters. I would rather hear you say, Young as I am, what I have to say comes from God, and God's word says so-and-so, and so-and-so. There it is, and you must believe what God says, or you will be lost. The people who hear you will say, That young fellow certainly believes something. And very likely some of them will be led to believe too. God uses the faith of his ministers to breed faith in other people. You may depend upon it that souls are not saved by a minister who doubts and the preaching of your doubts and your questions can never possibly decide a soul for Christ. You must have great faith in the word of God if you are to be winners of souls to those who hear it. You must also believe in the power of that message to save people. You may have heard the story of one of our first students who came to me and said, I have been preaching now for some months, and I do not think I have had a single conversion. I said to him, and do you expect that the Lord is going to bless you and save souls every time you open your mouth? No, sir, he replied. Well then, I said, that is why you do not get soul saved. If you had believed, the Lord would have given the blessing. I had caught him very nicely, but many others would have answered me in just the same way as he did. They tremblingly believe that it is possible, by some strange mysterious method, that once in a hundred sermons God might win a quarter of a soul. They have hardly enough faith to keep them standing upright in their boots. How can they expect God to bless them? I like to go to the pulpit feeling this is God's word that I am going to deliver in his name. It cannot return to him void. I have asked his blessing upon it and he is bound to give it and his purposes will be answered whether my message is a savior of life unto life or of death unto death to those who hear it. Now if this is how you feel, what will be the result if souls are not saved? Why, you will call special prayer meetings to seek to know why the people do not come to Christ. You will have inquirers meetings for the anxious. You will meet the people with a joyful countenance so that they may see that you are expecting a blessing but at the same time you will let them know that you will be grievously disappointed unless the Lord gives you conversions. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.